0: This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful in your word you have so clearly told us who we are, why you made us, how you made us, and what you intend, so that as Christians we live in the blessing of knowing what the world seems to be at a loss to discover, and uh, our hearts break for the many, many people who are confused, who are in rebellion uh, against you, and uh, who fight against you, and yet we know the gospel can pierce and penetrate and save even the most hardened uh, rejectors of your truth. And we pray that you would use us to bring about salvation of those who don't know you, especially those afflicted, especially those who have uh, gone the way of the LGBTQ revolution. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. By the way, I recognize a number of you And um, ever since I had cancer four years ago and went through chemotherapy, I have a hard time associating faces I recognize with names. So please don't be offended if I recognize your face and not your name, because it sometimes doesn't come to me right away. Uh, Well, this afternoon we want to talk about what what I have uh, changed the title of this session to Preparing for the Flood. Um, we, We all know the biblical story of God calling Noah to build an ark and spend hundreds of years doing that and gathering animals. I think we are on the verge of something similar in the sense that I believe very soon uh, there will be a flood of refugees from the sexual revolution who have exhausted every desire, exhausted every option to fulfill um, their sexual desires, their confusion, their rejection of the truth of God, and will come to our churches, we'll meet Christians, and we'll be dying to know, is there any hope? I've tried everything else. And the question is, will our churches be ready for that? And I would argue that this uh, question <clears throat> of whether we are ready for the refugees from the sexual revolution will be one of the most difficult transitions uh, the church will make. Uh, Because we will have to um, retrain, re-equip Christians in our churches to be able to say, here's someone walking through the door. I don't know what they are. They have so radically altered their appearance. I'm not sure what to make of it. But I'm going to go over and greet them and love them and seek to disciple them. And then as a church, we're going to work through issues of which bathroom should they use? Do they go to the men's bible study or the ladies bible study these are the challenges i think that are coming our way and yet i think there's a great opportunity for the gospel so i would like to start by giving an overview of uh what's going on in the transgender craze which is a subtitle of one of the books sorry i have weird shaped ears and these things never fit me right so i'm going to fiddle with it the entire time give you an overview of that and then talk about some pastoral concerns and then hopefully take some questions. So let's first of all begin uh, with this statement. The central tenet, central principle of transgenderism is that sex and gender are separate identifiable concepts and there is no guarantee that one's gender identity will be consistent with one's biological sex. So my guess is many of you have uh, sensed that this is the case that That a person's biological sex, their anatomical uh, sexual uh, features, their genitalia, uh, has now been considered to be irrelevant in deciding who they are as a person or their gender. And that's the heart of it, is people who are clearly male, clearly female, are saying, my body does not tell the story, all that matters is my internal sense or feelings. Secondly, the term gender dysphoria is important to know and understand. Uh, It can be defined as a marked incongruity or conflict between one's internal feelings and their physical body and biological sex. So it is a woman, or typically when it's females, it's a teenage girl who feels like she should be a boy. So she has a female body, And yet internally, she feels like she should be a boy or typically a man, uh, because there's a difference in when people first experience gender dysphoria. Uh, Most typically females, it has become now just in the last few years, teenage, uh, adolescent. Uh, For men, it's typically older. But there's someone who is male in all their bodily features and feels female internally. Now, for for doctors and and diagnosticians, they used to add in here uh, that this uh, incongruity had to last at least six months to be anything diagnosable. That's gone, that is gone. Now the general recommendation is any feeling or sense that this is the case ought to be immediately uh, counseled and pushed then into a dramatic change of chemical or surgical intervention. Uh, So even among those who first defined uh, gender dysphoria, they've gotten rid of that whole idea of a six-month waiting period. At the heart of the transgender movement is the radical claim that people are what they are or people are what they claim to be regardless of contrary evidence. So here's something interesting. In apologetics, for many, many years, Christians have been trained to deal with modernists People who say, give me evidence for the existence of God. Give me evidence for uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And we've been trained. Josh McDowell, um, others like him. Here's evidence that demands a verdict. Here's all the historical evidence. And we, many Christians have worked on that. And they have that library in their head. So if someone asks for evidence, they can give arguments. Do not think for a moment with the LGBTQ revolution, transgenderism specifically, that evidence matters at all. We are, we're dealing with a postmodern phenomenon where the outward world is to be distrusted. We're going to be suspicious of it. It is about an internal feeling, an internal sense, and you cannot argue against that. All right, if you've ever had someone, you know, me, the typical male, my wife gets afraid of something, I say, don't be afraid of that. <laughs> and I have no concept of fear in this situation, but she does and I have a hard time even imagining. That, that's what we're dealing with is people that you can say, uh, but honey, you're a girl, obviously. You have girl parts. You're obviously, fe- it doesn't matter. In the postmodern mindset, all that matters is your internal sense of right and wrong, your internal experience. Some statistics here, 75% of new transgender cases are adolescent girls convinced they are boys. This is known as rapid onset gender dysphoria. Seventy-five percent of new transgender cases are teenage girls, Uh, whereas with men, it typically is later in life or at least into their 20s before they sense that, sometimes much later. Eighty to 95 percent of minors with gender dysphoria will resolve their dysphoria by the age of 18 if they are not pushed into some kind of treatment. Think about that. I, I've found this, uh, this figure in multiple studies, multiple people cite it. 80 to 95% of those who struggle in their teen years or even their uh, pre-adolescent years that feel this sense of confusion if they are not pushed into something, given puberty-blocking treatments, given cross-sex hormones, given surgery, encouraged to, to wear a chest binder. If there's no intervention, almost all of it will be resolved. 40% of trans people have attempted suicide. This, this is staggering. This is so many more times higher than any other demographic group in the United States. And of course, the way the, uh, the dogmatists of the transgender movement tell us, it's because you Christians, you parents, don't accept them, and therefore you are pushing them to suicide. Now, are there cases where perhaps that's happened? Sure, uh, no doubt about it. But doesn't it seem more likely that after years of trying to become something you are not, trying to deny the physical reality of your body, and not just your body, but your internal emotional sense of male and female, fighting against that and coming up short and finding no happiness, m- maybe that could possibly be the cause of that. I-, I would argue it is the main cause transgenderism, even more than lesbianism, homosexuality, bisexuality, is a rejection of creation in God's design. Think about it. This is what makes the T added to LGB so weird. To have lesbians, you have to have decidedly clear female people, women, right? We all know what the definition of a woman is now after Matt Walsh's uh, movie, right? <laughs> we know that now. To have lesbians, you have to have women. To have homosexual or gay men, you have to have men. To be bisexual, that means that you uh, are attracted to both men and women. Those all require a binary, right, male and female. And somehow transgenderism gets patched onto this, which denies there's any such thing as gender. It's a bizarre union or cooperation. Transgenderism depends on a corruption of language. It is what we might call late-stage postmodernism applied to sexuality. That is, if you're thinking, Mark, I have a hard time just keeping up with the terminology. That's on purpose. This is not by accident that the terminology changes regularly, and what used to be okay to say is not. They're doing that on purpose to keep everyone off balance to make you constantly feel guilty that you called someone the wrong thing so that you will feel a sense of guilt if you don't fully embrace it. It's entirely on purpose. Just look at the case in 2020, when Amy Coney Barrett was being vetted for the Supreme Court. And in her testimony, she used the word sexual preference. Sexual preference, which up until the day she gave that testimony in Merriam-Webster's dictionary was considered an optional, acceptable term to use. But someone at the dictionary forgot to update it, realizing that makes it sound like everyone's just choosing this, and we don't want people to think that we're choosing homosexuality or transgenderism. It's happening to us. So that day that Amy Coney Barrett testified, or the day after, The Merriam-Webster Dictionary Online went in and changed that phrase, sexual preference, to offensive. This is a manipulation of language. One of my sick interests is French postmodernism. I don't know why I like it. It's weird. It's bizarre. You cannot understand anything they're saying, but I love to read it because it's so weird. And for generations, French postmodernism has influenced the West and one of the core things is we must destroy language. And so we need to realize with this whole issue that that is one of the intentional goals. The transgender worldview is inherently contradictory. Uh, Ryan Anderson, probably one of the two best books on this subject, is Ryan, Harrison. Uh, Ryan Anderson's When Harry Became Sally, responding to the transgender moment, which is so bizarre because you cannot buy this book on Amazon. Amazon banned it. You can buy a dozen or two dozen other really good books, both Christian, non-Christian, on transgenderism, but Amazon zeroed in on this book and said, it will not be sold. So even to this day, I I tried it this morning. Can't buy it on there. Ryan Anderson says, think about the contradiction in the transgender movement. The real self, who, who this person is, is supposed to be fundamentally separate from their body. But in order to become their true self, they have to transform their body. See the contradiction there? Your true self has nothing to do with your physical anatomy and your body. But in order for you to become your true self, you have to transform and change your body. That's a contradiction. Here's another one. Transgenderism attaches a notion of authentic gender identity to stereotypical activities. Men do these things. Women do these things. At the same time, it insists that gender is an artificial construct. So you might be familiar with the uh, actress Ellen Page, who, in the last couple of years, has had her breast removed, has had a uh, phalloplasty where they created a a penis, quote unquote, out of skin and muscle out of her forearm, and now she parades around online. She had her; uh, she's been taking medication, so her jaw has has widened um, other features, she looks very different. And she's trying to do stereotypical male activities, which the whole argument of transgenderism is gender as a, as a construct. Why can't a man wear a dress? You know, Shouldn't everyone be Harry Styles walking around wearing a dress? And, and why can't women take their tops off? Like they argue these two things at the same time contradictory. A third contradiction is transgenderism promotes a radical subjectivity in which individuals should be free to do whatever they wish and define the truth as they choose, right? While at the same time calling for others to have enforced conformity to belief, right? So they can choose their pronouns. They have the freedom to do that, but you don't have the freedom to call them what you think they are, you must conform. So again, another contradiction. And then one more, on the one hand, trans activists want the authority of science as they make metaphysical claims about gender. Science tells us gender is such a con- just a construction. On the other hand, they deny that biology is destiny. So this is the madness, it is madness. When you read the transgender literature itself, it is absolute madness. Eighthly, transgenderism sees natural body processes as problematic rather than God's design for blessing. Way more than homosexuality and lesbianism, transgenderism tries to deny every single thing about Genesis one through three. Uh, And and this has been going on for a long time. You know, back in 100 years ago, when Margaret Sanger was around, she was trying to separate sex from procreation or conception. And then we moved forward in time, and with technology, now we can uh, separate uh, conception from sex, where we can have children created in a Petri dish. Uh, We'll talk about that sometime. I won't, but I love talking about in vitro fertilization and the problems involved there. Not that I'm against it entirely, but kind of landmines. And eventually they're talking about we're going to separate our bodies from sex. Like there's separation of all these things God intended to be together. Transgenderism wants to deny that there's male and female. Wants to deny that there's any given design or role in these distinctions. Folks, what God has given to us in our distinctives as male and female is for our blessing, Now, can it be distorted and misused and corrupted? Oh yeah, like everything else. But when we use our maleness and femaleness, when we understand masculinity and femininity in the way God intended, it is for our blessing. Transgenderism rejects all of that. Transgenderism is essentially existential that says, you don't have a human nature given to you by God. You just find yourself existing and have to decide what you do. Your body is raw material. As, uh, as one recent um, book by Mary Harrington called Feminism Against Progress. She says the, the world likes to treat our bodies as meat Legos. Meat Legos. My son growing up loved Legos, why? Because you can pop a brick off, you can build new things, take it all apart. That's the way transgenderism treats your body. You can do whatever you want, carve yourself up, take medications to change you because your body is interchangeable parts, like the little Lego men. You know, you can have a Chewbacca head and a stormtrooper torso and Luke Skywalker's legs. No problem with Legos. It does not work that way in nature. The trans dogma says we must defer to the feelings of children. Here's a quote by Dr. Scott Leibowitz, a trans uh, activist. Pre pubertal children, so children before puberty, asserting a different identity from the one they were assigned at birth, are cognitively capable enough to be aware of the gender they are asserting. In other words, children know what they are. And some some activists are saying children as young as two ought to be able to make decisions about their gender. When my son was two, his sisters got a little hairdressing plastic Fisher-Price studio, and they sat him in it and put bows and ribbons in his hair. If he had said, look, Daddy, I'm a girl, well, I I probably would have said, no, you're not, son, let's go hunting or something like that. Uh, But obviously, children, children don't know anything, right? They know not to eat their own boogers, right? It's true. And you have these highly trained professionals saying children ought to be able to decide to radically, permanently change their bodies. Think about, too, the adolescent aversion to discomfort means that there is a drug for every malady. We have Ritalin for inattention, opioids for pain, Xanax for nerves, Lexapro for the blues, Ozempic for weight loss, and now testosterone for female puberty. And again, back to this idea that what God has given to us is for our blessing, our bodies have functions right? And our bodies go through cycles. Puberty, as awful as it was when we all went through it, right, is intended to be a blessing for God, from God. Menstruation, ovulation, gestation, which the world sees as problematic. We've got to override these systems. We've got to end these systems. God intended for good. In transgender surgery, one of the first things that happens typically for young women when they decide they're a young man, and they start on, uh, if they haven't gone through puberty yet, they start on puberty-blocking treatment, which keeps them from uh, going into puberty and then limits their size, affects their bones, all that kind of stuff. But if they go into cross-sex hormones, then young women begin to grow facial hair, their voices get deeper, other things happen. But one of the first surgical inventions is known as top surgery where a young girl will have her breasts removed and have a chest constructed to look like a man because in the transgender viewpoint, breasts are simply lumps of flesh. Whereas you talk to any OBGYN, the breast is an incredible organ designed with the ability to produce nourishing milk by lactating and feeding a baby. It is not simply a lump of flesh that can be attached and reattached at will. So transgenderism is patently anti-scientific and anti-natural. One of the considerations we have to think about is the mutilation of the body. So the second major surgery that young women typically have after they have their breasts removed is they have a phalloplasty where surgeons will strip their forearm of flesh and muscle and seek to create a faux penis and attach it to their body. Um, you and I know it can never be a real functioning penis. Uh, And for men that have uh, surgical intervention, they have their testicles and and penis removed and a a fake vagina, which is essentially an opening into their body, a permanent wound created to give the illusion of a vagina. And in most of these cases, the basic urinary function of your genitals is wrecked. So you have teenage girls making these decisions, and then they find out it's not so easy after all, and now I have to live with a urine bag the rest of my life because my urethra is completely messed up. And many young people think, okay, it's just a simple surgery and then I'm a boy. No, it's surgeries for the rest of your life. Painful surgeries. And yet doctors and educators are pushing this upon children. It is madness. 25 miles from here at Duke Medical Center, Deanna Atkins is the director of the Duke Center for Child and Adolescent Gender Care. Listen to what she says. She's the director of this clinic for children. She says, it is counter to medical science to use chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, external genitalia, or secondary sex characteristics to override gender identity for purposes of classifying someone as male or female. It's counter to medical science to look at a child's body and say, male or female. You are anti-science, you are a science denier if you do that. This woman, less than 25 miles from here, is running a medical center where children are getting carved up every day. This is what we're dealing, and this is happening all over the country. I think in uh, 2004, there, was, there were two gender clinics in the entire world. Now there are over 100 here in the United States alone. And uh, I think I have a statistic somewhere in the notes here, $632 billion a year industry, transgender medicine. You, you think money might be involved possibly? I don't know, just a guess. If we had time, we'd go into the philosophical background of that. You can read Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, to, uh, to read that. Or if it scares you, get his little short book, Strange New World. It's, it's also very good. So what are some considerations? The mutilation of the body. You can go online and look and Google what happens when they seek to uh, change male into female. It's, it's butchery. It is just butchery. And many of these uh, people think that, you know, one, one and done, surgery, and I'm gonna come out with a fully functioning body of the opposite sex. It cannot happen, because to your very chromosomes, you're male or female. Here's another consideration, the transformation of medicine. Leon Cast, who's an outspoken opponent of transgender medicine, doctor, not a Christian, says the implicit and sometimes explicit model of the doctor-patient relationship is one of contract these days. It's not supposed to be that. The physician, a highly competent hired syringe, as it were, sells his services on demand, restrained only by the law. Here's the deal, for the patient, autonomy and service. For the doctor, money graced by the pleasure of giving the patient what he wants. And many transgender activists will say, medicine is there to satisfy our desires. It's not there for healing. It's there to satisfy our desires. In my next session, I'm gonna talk about uh, the ethics of organ transplantation. Early pioneers of organ transplantation were a little bit nervous. They said, if we take a perfectly healthy patient who wants to donate an organ, we're doing surgery on a healthy person. That's never been done before. Well, guess what? Transgenderism makes makes that concern uh, to be a, a school playground kind of concern because now we are carving up healthy bodies for no other reason than simple desire. Let's move on to practical, and then we'll take questions. Oh, I've got hours and hours worth of material here I wish I could give you, but we can't. Uh, first of all, how do you prevent a transgender craze in your church? I get the word craze from a book. I, I left the cover at home, but one of the best books on this is by an unbeliever, Irreversible Damage. I'll put a slide up with a the, with the picture of the cover on in just a moment. Irreversible Damage, Abigail Schreier. The uh, subtitle is The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. I can't imagine anything worse than in your church seeing a teenage girl struggle with gender dysphoria, and then making the decision to proceed with this. In many places, parents have no say anymore. You oppose it as a parent. I think this just was passed in Massachusetts. If you oppose transgender care, your child will be removed from your home. I think this is already happening in California. And so parents are between a rock and a hard place. You're also well aware that in schools, uh, schools are instructed If a child wants to change their gender, you're not allowed to tell the parents. And this goes way beyond just transfer of gender. Where I am from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, pretty conservative area, the Amish are all around us. Uh, One of my students told me a sister teaches at a local public school, elementary school, and they have a kitty litter box for one of the young girls who thinks she's a cow. And when the teacher calls on her, she meows, and the teacher says, wonderful, great job, Sally. Uh, Thank you for solving that mathematical equation. And she goes to the bathroom in the litter box. All of this is connected. And if we think that's bizarre, we really shouldn't think that the transgender thing is any less bizarre than that. So what are some things that can be done? Very quickly, we need to warn of the dangers of the internet in this book, Irreversible uh, Damage, and in a more recent book, Lost in Transnation by a child psychologist. They say, overwhelmingly, studies show that, um, especially with prepubescent and adolescent girls, transgender transformation happens after sustained time on the internet. You can go on the internet and find full-grown adults, adult men, teaching your teenage daughters how to transition, how to hide it from you, and saying, listen, your parents aren't going to understand. They're going to reject you. I'm here for you. Message me, and we'll get together. That used to be cause for concern, but now it is protected speech. Uh, I, I tell people, if you give your children and teenagers access to a cell phone, uh, you will reap the whirlwind, but everyone's doing it. I know, but you have to be concerned about your kid, Unfettered internet access. I mean, you, you, we, we don't have to go on a rant about how um, depraved our world is today. Secondly, we need to equip parents, pastors, to catechize children in biblical worldview. I grew up independent Baptist. Catechism was for the Catholics. We left that behind when we came to Christ. It's one thing the Catholics got right and the high Presbyterians and the Anglicans We need to catechize our children. We need to teach them the historic creeds and confessions of the church, which include things about who they are as created by God. How many Christian teenagers graduate from high school can't explain the Trinity? Can't explain any biblical teaching on who they are as human beings made in God's image. Thirdly, we need to teach the glory of biblical categories of male and female. We need to have churches full, not of lumberjack men, because masculinity is not limited to swinging an axe and having big muscles. Sometimes it has to do with having a really good gut worked over time and you know appreciation of baked goods, right? No. <laughs> masculinity is not, it's not singular, but it is limited, right? We, we don't say that anything could be masculine. We need to teach healthy masculinity, healthy femininity to our girls. Um, One of my friends, Sam Andreatis, has a website called Affirming Gender. Affirming Gender. Sam's not that well-known, but he's written several excellent books. Uh, You can find them on Amazon. I highly recommend you go to his website, Affirming Gender. I don't know anyone that's more careful with looking into what the Bible actually says about male and female and saying this is what we ought to be teaching. So how do we prepare for the flood of refugees Pastors, we need to teach and preach a robust biblical anthropology. What does it mean to be human? And by God's grace, there's at least 25 good books that have come out in the last 10 years on that. Pastors, we need to dive in and and learn that. Most of us learned a biblical anthropology that was so limited, so surface, so focused on, you know, we're brains on a stick. You got anxiety, change the way you think, you know, you put new thoughts. There's more to it than that and also a theology of the body. The body is good. God gave it to us for good reasons. And there are limits to the body and there are ways we should handle our body, but we need to teach this because otherwise our children and our adults will be catechized by the world. Train your most compassionate, wise people on how to care for transgender people who come to your church. We all know we have people in the church that should not be the ones to go greet the transgender walking in the door, right? God bless them. But my guess is every one of you in church have people that are patient, they're tolerant, they're loving, and they speak the truth in love. You probably need to pull them aside and say, listen, we got to find some training material because at some point someone's going to walk through the door and we need you to be there to say, hi, how are you? Come sit with me. Tell me about yourself. And. And to make that person, because that person could be, could be on the verge of suicide, could be on the verge of despair. They've wrecked their bodies, they've wrecked their appearance, and now they're just wondering, maybe, maybe Christianity has an answer? We need to be ready for that. From parking lot to membership. we got to think through this. Let's say someone who has totally destroyed their body, surgically and chemically, gets saved. And now they're growing in Christ, and they want to join have we prepared our churches for saying, you know what, folks, many of us have infirm bodies and we're waiting for the resurrection. Uh, this brother here or this sister um, will readily admit that in their rebellion against God, they did things to their body that they now regret. And we're going to love them and help them along the way. And they will encourage us and we will be ready for when Christ comes and we, our bodies are resurrected and transformed, they'll be made whole again. I don't know how many churches that are there yet and ready for that. We need to teach compassion and discipleship for gender dysphoria, for those who are confused, the same way we do for same-sex attraction and heterosexual lust and overeating and sinful anxiety and covetousness, Right? Many people have a strong, sometimes overwhelming desire for a particular sin. And discipleship says, how can, we, how can we learn to say no to the flesh and turn to Christ and find our desires transformed? We need to do the same with those who are confused. And we need to call, finally, for holiness and dying to self. That is, all of us, not just people studying with gender tra- uh, dysphoria, Need to learn, God has called us to holiness. God has called us to die to our desires. Isn't that a struggle for you? It is for me. I'm here without my wife and thought of, where am I gonna go to dinner? Ooh, someplace indulgent. That <laughs> she would say, honey, you really shouldn't eat that way. You know, your, your clothes are looking a little tight. Why? Because I love things that are bad for me, don't you? In my flesh. So how do I turn to Christ and find satisfaction in him? We need to emphasize two more points. We need to emphasize sanctification all the way to glorification and the hope of the restoration of creation when Christ comes. Our preaching and teaching on what comes next shouldn't be primarily, oh boy, now it's going to be hard time, shouldn't be primarily on reading the signs to anticipate Christ's return. It should be how do we get ourselves Ready for seeing Christ and being finally transformed into His image. How do we set our hearts on the return of Christ, knowing that in this life uh, there are some things that we'll never get back? Right, I feel that way. My knees are so shot; I can never hike again the way I used to up in New Hampshire. So I can't wait for the new heavens and the new earth. Man, I'm going to be summoning all the fourteen thousand foot peaks and. <laughs> So when I think about the things I can no longer do because of physical limitations, I think about how Christ will restore that. Very quickly, we need to preach the gospel of forgiveness for sin and the restoration of sinners. Let our churches never forget that we are all here because Christ has forgiven us our sin. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, such as were some of you, and he names homosexuals, he names covetous, idolaters, perhaps murderers, uh, people who used to be abusive to others, people who gambled away their savings, people who drank away their family. We know the gospel can uh, reminds us that we are forgiven if we repent and that Christ can restore. We might still suffer the consequences, but Christ can restore, and that needs to be the constant theme of our preaching. Come to Christ and find in him restoration. Okay. Thank you very much. Let's uh, take some questions, if there are any. Yes. The other day, I came across a video by Rosea. Rosaria Butterfield? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely excellent. I would recommend that. It's entitled, Repairing the Foundation. Mm. Yeah, so Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured lesbian feminist activist, professor at University of Syracuse, came to Christ through the witness of a local pastor, has written a number of outstanding books, and, uh, yeah, she has tons of YouTube videos. I highly recommend her work. As As a former lesbian who was living with a transgender, she gets the whole picture. She is right down the middle, solid theologically, and addresses this with compassion, but clarity. Thank you for mentioning her. Excellent. Yes? How do we handle with um, teenagers in our family who want their name changed? Mm, Good question. That's very tough. So let's say you have a teenager who comes to you and says, my name is no longer, um, all I can think of is names of people my generation, Janet and Shelly, okay. Uh, Michaela is her name, and she's now Mike. What do you do? A couple years ago in church, I had a woman come up to me and said, "Uh, Mark, I'm heartbroken. Thanksgiving's in two weeks. My granddaughter, my beautiful granddaughter, called me and says, Grandma, I'd like to come to Thanksgiving, but I'm no longer Michaela. I'm now Michael. And if you don't call me that, I won't come. I don't want to talk about this. I've cut my hair. I'm dressing like a boy. You either accept me as I am, uh, or I won't come to Thanksgiving. You can imagine the heartbreak this poor woman was going through. And maybe you know people who are going through that as well. Um, Carl Truman has some really good thoughts on this. He says, we cannot lie and uh, agree with people when they say, change my pronouns. So, and I think Rosaria Butterfield also deals with this. She said, I will not call a transgender person by the opposite pronoun. However, if they tell me they've changed their name, I will honor that. But at the same time, I will let them know that I still believe that you are a a girl, a female. Uh, But if you want me to call you Mike, I will call you Mike, because that's what you say your name is. But I will not call you he. Um, And each of us has to work through that on our own and how to deal with that, but I would suggest that we should not um, go along with a lie uh, in that area. Another very important book that has nothing to do with transgenderism is by Rod Dreher called Live Not By Lies. Has anybody read that? He talks about uh, how Christians survived under communism in Romania and Ukraine and other places. It's a fantastic book, and he has some principles that carry over. Yes. Right. But I've got in our church, as a man that works with youth and works with young adults, I get two sides of the camp going on right now. I've got adults that say you need to be straightforward with them the way it is, they're an abomination. Well, mm-hmm. We've heard the arguments. But on the other side of the table, I've got going, you just. It, and I'll be quite honest with you, I have a friend of mine who lives here that I went to a Christian college. He and I ministered together for four years. We traveled the world presenting the gospel. And he lives an alternative lifestyle. I've been told by both sides of the camp. don't call him to have dinner. He and his partner. And on the other side I say I need to love him and show him compassion. So where draw, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a teacher, I teach the truth. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. So can I, can I summarize it and answer it just for the sake of time? So what about our contact with transgender people? What about our communications? What about church people that on one hand say just love them and go along with it for the sake of trying to reach them and others that say spit in their face and tell them they're an abomination? I don't think either one of these is healthy, either extreme. Uh, Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians 5 that if someone claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, until their lifestyle totally negates that, and they're living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin, I cannot have fellowship with them. Doesn't mean I won't talk to them, call them to repentance. But I would take it if someone's living for a period of time and unconfessed, unrepentant adultery, homosexuality, transgenderism, and then I would have to say this person clearly is not a believer, even if they claim to be one, and therefore I can have contact with them, because Paul says you can't do this with the world, otherwise you'd have to come out of the world. So as long as a person claims to be a Christian and, and um, uh, bears some resemblance of that, A good example is my sister-in-law lived with her boyfriend before they got married, and I wouldn't do the wedding because she said she was a Christian. So we need to make that distinction. However, one other thing that Ryan Anderson brings up is we want to love transgender people like anyone else, white supremacists and, um, you know, uh, members of the Church of Satan and all that kind of stuff. But ask yourself the question, does my love include... um, messages of truth, calls to repentance, sharing the gospel. If not, then it's not real love, it's sentimentality. Amen. So, brother, I appreciate your concern, and I think much more needs to be said about how do we work this out in details. We are at the end of our time. Thank you so much. I hope this has helped. Um, Thank you. The, The two best books on this... One by an unbeliever is Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. She documents what's going on. Uh, It's unreal. Again, she's not a Christian, and uh, she has all kinds of resources there, Irreversible Damage. And then the best Christian um, book I've come across is this one, When, When Harry Met Sally. There's lots of good ones. I've read probably 10 in the last year um, there's a little bit of overlap. But each one comes with a different perspective. So I'd encourage you to read and, uh, and grow in this ability. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.